I mean, what's that football focus doing? Last week they had Brady. This week they got Brady. We're doing it. We're literally doing it differently from everybody else. As a matter of fact, moving forward from this point on, I will not make reference to PML. Ready to get into it? Yeah, yeah. All right. We're going team by team. I would be very careful about slinging stuff. Am I going to get sued? Is that legal on this? I like football, like football season, all the things that go with it. Welcome in to the PFF NFL Podcast, Steve Palazzolo, Sam Monson. We're live on YouTube Thursday morning. Appreciate it, everybody that's joining us or listening in podcast land. How you doing, man? Not bad. You? Doing great. We've got um, all sorts of fun stuff. Great show today because we called it training camp takeaways, but it's really good. I mean, we're going to focus a lot on Packers Bengals because we were there. Yeah, in person, and we know that our in-person takes are worth at least 50 times anything we see on film. <laughs> so we're going to overreact to yesterday's practice, Packers and Bengals. We've got a little NFL news with a big signing, a big signing by the Cleveland Browns. Mm. How's that tease? Good. And then uh, it's football. Like We got real football tonight. Not one, but two games tonight, and then 16 games this entire weekend. Yeah, really, yeah, real-ish football. Real-ish. Yeah, yeah, then we'll say the same thing a month from now. We'll say, real football stars. Well, I tweeted, so when the Hall of Fame game, you know, they, they, they posted, like, here are the players that won't be playing in the Hall of Fame game. And it was, like, the roster. Um, I tweeted at that point, like, the real uh, football is back, but the NFL is still a few weeks away. That's where we are now, right? <laughs> football is back. We're, we're going to see football tonight, but it's not the NFL, really, because most NFL players won't be playing in it. Yes, that's true. But uh, look, if we, were, if we were willing to dive into the tape and watch these players against Mac schools, why wouldn't you want to watch some of these rookies and players against uh, other NFL players? <laughs> Think of it like an all-star game. <laughs> Which uh, the Rams' depth chart right now currently kind of looks like a college all-star game that just dropped Aaron Donald in there. Yeah. And now John Johnson the third too. Another, John Johnson Another III. big signing. Return. Yeah. The return. Yeah, disappointing career a couple of years with the Cleveland Browns it was interesting I was in uh I was at Zach Taylor's press conference yesterday while you were still making your way to the stadium yeah. um and they were kind of asking him are we going to get to a point where preseason games go away in favor of teams focusing on these joint scrimmages which most teams seem to do now right the the joint scrimmage things have become very big and he was saying, no, it's, you know, there are coaches that have their preferences and still like the live games, et cetera. But he's clearly of the opinion that the scrimmages are, you know, better. Um, and part of it is because you can basically control the situation in a way you can for the game. Like the game, you are at the mercy of game flow, right? And you might not have a single red zone play in the entire game if the game goes that practice way. Practice right? what you want to practice. Exactly. Whereas with the joint scrimmages, you can go in there and say, all right, we have neglected this area or this area has been a weakness. We need to work hard on that. I want a session that does goal line or whatever. And the other team, as long as they agree, now you're doing a session of goal line, you get to practice. Also, their offense might have completely different, you know, desires of what they want to practice than yours. So you can do both at the same time. Like it's, it's, it's just better. And you can, it's, you know, less, it's thud contact rather than, you know, full tackling when people get hurt, blah, blah, blah. 
it's just generally speaking better in a lot of ways for what teams are trying to do at this point, which is, you know, gear up for the season. Less wear and tear. You can get so many more reps. You can get the reps that you want. I don't think the games ever go away, of course, because, well, they bring fans in. And money. Uh, money, of course. Right. But um, even as a coach, though, I assume you you also want to get your dry run for calling game, game flow. You know, you go three and out, you know, just sit there and, you know, run 10 offensive plays with, you know, with no structure. You have to get used to that as well. Not necessarily, though. I mean, Vrabel is turning over um, basically head coaching duties to one of his assistants, like, Basically saying, <laughs> yeah, in one of the games, I don't so. have any use for this. You play head coach for this game. Yeah, but it doesn't like he's still sitting there. You know, he's taking his own mental reps as a coach, getting back in the swing of things. And Vrabel's taking mental reps during the preseason game. Yeah, you know that. The PFF NFL podcast is sponsored by Western and Southern Financial Group. While you focus on your roster moves, Western and Southern helps advance your money moves. Buying your first home, planning to start a family, wondering how to make your money grow? Well, Western and Southern's playbook of life insurance, investment, and retirement solutions helps you rest assured on game day. Team up to understand needs and address goals with a game plan built just for you. Get started at westernsouthern.com slash PFF. Yeah, um, that led to something like you, the reports out of camp and everything. When you like when a team's focusing on the red zone and it's like QBX had four, uh, six touchdowns today. Mm-hmm. It's like, yes, they were working on red zone. And that, like, but people still don't really understand that perspective. Um, so getting into Packers-Bengals yesterday... Well, nobody, was, nobody reports with any context anymore. With any context. We were I had, saying, you know, you, we were basically saying you should, you should, it would be quite a funny bit if you basically went to all these training camps and tweeted stuff deliberately absent of context, right? Like, you know, somebody missing from training camp. You're like, oh, like Sean Clifford getting reps with the ones. Maybe Jordan Love's uh, gig is under <laughs> under threat just because Jordan Love is like sitting out that drive or whatever. Yeah, like, just because he, yeah. But people don't. People, and... I, you know, if you want to give the benefit of the doubt to some of these guys, like it can be difficult to get the full context live at the time on the sideline when everything's going on and things are happening fast. But it, it we do live in this world where half the information out there during training camp is just contextless tweeting from nobody. I do hate not having a replay. Mm. It is a tough way to watch a game, um, and it's it, also difficult. Um, not just replays, but the ability to just see things over and over right. again, rewind, whatever it might be. It's also difficult to kind of get a general sense of something during, like, so you tweet, uh, you know, Bengals defense is suffocating the, the Packers offense, right? And then they go to, like, red zone, and the Packers offense actually gets some success. You're like, well, that's invalid. And then it goes back, you know, like, it can change three times in the course of a practice, and it's difficult without waiting until all the way to the end of it. And then, okay, now, here's the composite of my opinion on this entire topic well that was waits for that that was the one where somebody's like oh look at these pff guys completely contradicting themselves because i said christian watson was wide open on a touchdown but you were absolutely right the bengals defense was suffocating the packers offense that is the general takeaway i think from that side of the ball the bengals defense was very very good but of course the packers had some plays for the second year in a row um in like joint scrimmages but also like a picture is worth a thousand words like there was one really nice play from uh jordan love to romeo dobbs down the sideline for what would have been a big touchdown or is a big touchdown and it's like well that's that that carries more weight than somebody's saying and it's the opposite but it also goes back to what i was saying where if if that was a game like if, if we were actually watching a game the packers may have gone three and out three straight times yeah instead of like we're running 12 plays right. 
and two of them were successful. Overall. And there's no connection yeah. to there. So. If you were saying, like, how did that practice overall roll up into a game performance? Like, Green Bay's offense scored, like, 12 points. Yeah, I think that's a fair that's Including a fair the seven, like, the seven touchdown bomb to right. Dobbs. And they right? may not have gotten into the red zone where they did do exactly, nice yeah. work and had a few nice passes against the Bengals' defense, right? Mm-hmm. So... Um, so let's let's start let's let's talk about this a little bit. We're on the sideline hanging out, and um, it was Packers rules, Packers which meant rules. Um, we could only film during periods one, two, three, parts of five, eleven, and thirteen. It was a seven thing in there as well. I'm just yeah. Matter. And then it's it irrelevant. Made, That's when we could film, and those were pretty much all special teams periods. Yeah, which was, and then that was made even more difficult by the fact that there were scoreboards at the end that show you what like session it is. You know, session eight, whatever. They were, A, telling different numbers. So yeah. one scoreboard was like number 10, one scoreboard was number 11. And B, uh, they were neither of them were correct. So yeah. they were but both was, telling you the wrong number, a different number. So nobody had any idea what session we were in. It was pretty easy to know when you couldn't film. It was when real football was happening, you can't film it. If someone was about to kick a ball, fair game. <laughs> so that was, those were the rules there. Um, so we couldn't get any one-on-ones. We couldn't yeah. get anything fun. You and I also chose to watch Packers offense versus Bengals defense predominantly because personally I didn't have the stomach for the uh, – I just didn't want to watch the other side. I wanted to see Jordan Love, bigger story. It right. was Jake Browning and Trevor Simeon on the other side for the, for the Bengals offense. I wanted to see Packers offense. Yeah, the way training camp is set up uh, in Cincinnati is there are two parallel fields, you know, one offense versus the defense on one side and then the flip side in the other field. Um, you have access to essentially the perimeter, but mostly on one side. So you can get a good look of either one of those fields, but no good way of seeing them both up close. So you basically have to choose whose offense you're more interested in or whose defense. And yes, the Jordan Love Green Bay offense was the more interesting thing absent Joe Burrow. So that's where we stayed most of the time. They should have let us in the middle. Yeah. I mean, we are consultants for both teams. That's true. They should have let us right in the, in the middle. So... Um, High-level takeaway, that side of the ball in particular. I thought the the Bengals' defense did look very good, and you and I both came to a similar conclusion from a Jordan Love perspective. I don't think anything about Jordan Love was bad, necessarily. I don't think anything was great. There were certainly some nice throws in there. But I thought patient-slash-conservative for Jordan Love, however you want to parse that, right? Um, There was a lot of underneath throws by Jordan Love. You see his career 43.7 passing grade. He's got one start. But there were a lot of checkdowns. Now, again, there's reasons for that. Is it because the Bengals are basic? The Bengals aren't blitzing, right? They're pretty much just running their base D. They played a lot of soft zone in this, you know, um, middle of the field area during practice, and you know they, they were allowing more underneath throws. Is that where the reads are taking them, or are the Packers really trying to reel? Jordan Love in. You know, we did we did our preview yesterday, AFC and NFC North, and we talked about the Packers. We talked about the volatility in Jordan Love's game from Utah State through NFL preseason through a little bit of NFL action. Are the Packers specifically trying to reel him in and get him playing within structure? So here's a question for you. This, this would make a good kind of GM segment, except it's more of a coaching question, actually. Um, but it's along these lines. Like, I've seen a lot of people, a lot of sort of NFL – I don't want to say insiders, but people with NFL connections say things like, um, I want to see quarterbacks throwing interceptions in training camp because the one time you get the chance to really test boundaries without consequences, right? Like, I, the, remember that time 
might have been his rookie season, might have been his second season, second season, I think, when he was starting, when people lost their minds for a period because Patrick Mahomes had thrown like six interceptions and two practices or whatever. And was like, oh, God, this is going to be a nightmare. This is going to be tech. Like everybody's worst fears of Texas Tech Patrick Mahomes, where he just goes out there making like every ridiculous off-platform left-footed throw he can make right to linebackers. And we're like, oh, no, he's not going to work. This is the disaster. Only it turns out Patrick Mahomes was just like, feeling out where the limit was, right? And then as soon as he figured that out, it's like, right now, I'm never going to throw an interception again. Or, you know, I'm going to be the best quarterback in the NFL going forward. So a lot of people have sort of made that point that I would like to see quarterbacks making mistakes and throwing interceptions in camp because it's the one opportunity you get. Um, On the other hand, you have evidence like this where Jordan Love is either playing quite conservatively right now just by himself or is being steered into that potentially to try and overcorrect a tendency to make those big mistakes in game i saw pittsburgh reporters saying that apparently kenny pickett has currently thrown one interception in training camp like the entirety of it and that interception hit the receiver in the hands is that actually a good thing i don't i mean i think i think interception totals are overrated generally um i still think avoiding turnovers is good again there's the the nerd football community who might say, ah, forget it. You just look at EPA, forget the actual interceptions. But it's like, it's taking a thing that's already noisy and then making it even noisier by saying you'll control the EPA on it too. So it's already a noisy thing. There's got to be context. So if Kenny Pickett hasn't thrown a, a real interception, and but he's not making any downfield throws, then I'm concerned. But if there's a highlight reel, George Pickens downfield chuck all the time from pick from from Pickett, which there is, maybe that's encouraging. Um, I will say it's not like Jordan Love didn't take shots. It was more when when the the, the Bengals were taken away downfield throws as well. And I was I think it was actually good that Love was was taking the underneath stuff. And then when there were one on ones on the outside. He hits Romeo Dobbs on the deep ball. He tries to hit Luke Musgrave on a deep ball and overthrows him. So they were taking shots when they needed. So I'd say <clears throat> the whole interception thing is just overrated on both ends, whether there's no interceptions or there's too many, unless we can see it and there's actual context. If somebody's going to say, look, Baker Mayfield has eight interceptions. He has something like that in camp. Yeah. It's six of them are like right to a linebacker. Okay, that's good. But again, Jordan Love threw a pick yesterday in the red zone. It was a bubble screen. And Mike Hilton just jumped it like he did in the Titans-Bengals game a couple years ago in the playoffs. Just jumps the bubble screen and picks it off. Mm-hmm. 99% of the time, the interception on a wide receiver screen is not the quarterback's fault. Um, unless he made a misread on the RPO. Right. But, but, but again, that's like the, uh, the punishment doesn't fit the crime. If you misread an RB, RPO, generally it should be like a tackle for loss. But Mike Hilton jumps the screen, receiver doesn't block him, and Jordan Love gets an interception. And the report is like, hey, Jordan Love threw a red zone interception. And it's like, yeah, it really wasn't – maybe he misread the RPO, but like he didn't deserve to have an interception because of it. It was just a great defensive play and a missed block. So there's just context that's needed with all this stuff. I need a turnover-worthy play number. But, yeah, I think I lean toward I'd rather see quarterbacks be aggressive. So if, 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 if there are big plays being made in camp and interceptions are coming with it, I'm okay with it. But that. it's a little like – it feels a little like to me um, like turnovers on fourth down. You know, it's like it's going to be a turnover anyway. You might as well heave it up and see what you can do. Like in training camp, there's no longer any negative consequences to that play. So I don't don't trust. I don't trust anyone else's eyes. Right. Like we see this all the time. You know, like uh, late in a game, there's like seven seconds left and 
you know you're going to be kicking a field goal or whatever, and the quarterback sometimes takes it and he throws it outside the numbers, and it's like if the throw's there, he'll make it. If it's covered even a little bit, he'll just overthrow it. I still don't think people can understand that context, and they're going to be like, man, this dude sailed it by 20 yards. Like, I don't, I don't think people understand context, so I don't trust anyone else's eyes except people, like a few people. Yeah. So that's where, like, we're, it's like a bad game of telephone sometimes coming from uh, training camp reports. Yeah, I mean, you always need, unfortunately, you always need to be there every day, see every throw, and, like, come to your own conclusion about what's actually going on. Like, the Kenny Pickett has thrown one interception thing, and that wasn't his fault, right? In you can't actually come to the conclusion of what that means without having seen every throw he's attempted. Right? It could mean he might not be taking enough shots. He might be being too conservative. Right? From the evidence, from the, all the information you currently possess, which is minimal highlight, you know, uh, highlight performances and like reports. Right? We don't have enough information to know what that means. It could mean. He's being too conservative, and he actually needs to be more aggressive and make some mistakes because in the NFL, he's not going to have the opportunity to discover where that line is. It could also mean nothing, that he's actually already doing that, and he just happens to have been laser accurate and not made any mistakes so far, which would be great. But from the information we have, it's impossible to tell which. It could mean he's not taking any shots to the middle of the field, which is the thing we wish that they would do more of. And the only shots are when he's got these very distinct one-on-ones. That was like the Alex Smith thing, right? Alex Smith needed, you know, until 2017, clear as day, wide open, and then he'll he'll make the downfield pass. And if it wasn't there, he was going to check down. And there's a certain level of success with that, but... I think I'd rather lean toward a little bit more aggressiveness for my QB. Um, so I thought I didn't have any strong feelings either way on Jordan Love. He certainly wasn't trash. Um, but the conservative, patient part of it, I thought was an interesting takeaway in this very small sample size for Love mm. if he plays a different game there. I'll also say this about the Packers offense. Christian Watson's speed. I saw it in person, so now I know he's fast. <laughs> I saw that he's fast. Christian Watson's really fast. I, didn't, I couldn't tell last year because I wasn't there in person. Yeah. But now that I saw it yesterday, he is very fast. Confirmed fast. Yes. So when Christian Watson lines up in a tight split, so when he's closer to the offensive line or the tight end, it is a scary proposition for defenses. It was the case last year. This is what the Chiefs would do with Tyreek Hill, um, whether it's – Inside receiver in a trip set with three receivers, whether he's the inside receiver there or if it's just generally a tight split. Because there's always the danger that he's simply going to run a crossing route. And usually the cornerback's going to have outside leverage against the tight split. And if the Packers choose to run a crossing route with Watson from a tight split, good luck. You can't cover it. Same thing was the case with Tyreek Hill. And they did that in the red zone yesterday, and Watson had like four steps on uh, Cam Taylor-Britt for a wide-open touchdown. They did similar stuff last year when Aaron Rodgers was the quarterback. I still think Christian Watson looks like they're going to lean into that athleticism, and I'm telling you, when they line him up tight, it's scary. So there's, there's some big playability there for the Packers' offense. I thought Jaden Reed running with the ones, their second-round receiver out of Michigan State, looks quick, looks fast. All the reports out of camp are true. Rookie tight end. Luke Musgrave, he is running with the ones as well. They're moving him around the formation. He had some good, some bad yesterday, but it's, a, it's an intriguing young receiving core for the Packers. Uh, Romeo Dobbs has the deep ball. It's, it's going to be all first and second year pass catchers. 
for the Packers, there might be some growing pains, but you can also see all the potential for those guys as well. Yeah, the, I, Romeo Dobbs stood out to me. He was almost always open. His route running works. He works against other players, not just a Green Bay Packers training camp thing. Now, this is just rerunning what happened last year. Like Romeo Dobbs training camp hype was out of control, and then he hit the regular season, and it didn't really happen. But I, I still think there's something there. Like this was not just a figment of everybody's imagination. I don't think that he's going to be one of these just permanent training camp superstars. You know, Dante Moncrief, a guy who dominates in camp and then it never happens in the NFL. I think last year's performance in training camp simply set expectations unrealistically high. Yeah. And he was still a rookie mid-round pick coming in, adjusting to a pro offense and all these kinds of things. But I do think this year he'll make a much bigger impact. And that combination now of... Dobbs as the guy that's always going to be open, the great route runner, Christian Watson with his speed, Musgrave with his size and athleticism and ability to run vertically. Like, they have some weaponry. It's really young. It's inexperienced. But they play. Like, Jaden Reed was there making some plays. Bo Melton with the second and third string was making a ton of plays as well. Um, I think they've got the pieces of a really good young receiving core. This season, DraftKings has launched the largest best ball tournament in DraftKings history. Right now, you can enter into DraftKings Best Ball Tournament for a shot at over $10 million in guaranteed cash prizes. Make your entry into the draft today. Sit back, relax, and enjoy the NFL season without having to worry about managing your roster, waiver wires, or anything else, really. Start playing best ball. Download the DraftKings app using code PFF. Enter the DraftKings Best Ball Millionaire Contest and then snake draft your team for the season. Each week, you'll automatically rack up points from all your top scorers. No ads, no drops, no trades. No, I should have played him instead. Teams with the most points by the end of the season will have a shot to take home the $1 million top prize. So what are you waiting for? Head to the DraftKings app and sign up with code PFF and start playing best ball today. Join the DraftKings $10 million best ball tournament only on DraftKings with code PFF. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Agent eligibility restrictions apply. Avoid where prohibited. See DraftKings.com for details. Speaking of a... uh um, potentially meaningless training camp story. What do you make of the reports that Washington players <laughs> essentially complained that Eric Bieniemy was grinding them too hard? Um, not much. Like I think it's literally the same reports that everybody's known about Eric Bieniemy. Like that's how he's coached. I think. Yeah. So, I don't, what, do you think Ron Rivera was surprised by this, or was he just like, kind of like Sean Payton, just kind of like told the truth one time in, in front of the media instead of yeah having so, no. some foresight to like not let this thing go? This is one where I think like I don't buy the idea that Sean Payton just wasn't thinking about what he was saying, and then after was like, oh wow, I shouldn't have I goofed on that one. Like I think Sean Payton knew exactly what he was saying and said it for a reason. Now you can argue whether that reason was smart or not, but I don't think that was just a mistake. I forgot I was an NFL head coach. I thought I was still a Fox analyst. I mean, Ron Rivera basically just said, hey, guys are getting used to his coaching style. They're not used to getting coached that hard. Yeah, but he also um, he he made a couple of comments that were sort of like. You know, Eric needs to, I forget, I don't have his words to hand exactly, but he sort of said something like, you know, this is part of being a coach. Like, Eric Bieniemy needs to sort of listen to this and, like, come to an understanding and, you know, meet whatever it was, right? And obviously, Bieniemy is this, like, hot-button topic of 
why has he been not given the opportunity to be a head coach? And there are a lot of people that jump to this conclusion of, well, it's obviously racism. That's the only explanation for why he's not a head coach and he's had to leave Kansas City, go do it at Washington to finally get that opportunity, right? There's also several other potential um, explanations as well, but the racism thing is too obvious to ignore when you're discussing Eric Bieniemy. So if you, anytime you're talking about him, you have to be careful about how you're saying things like that because if you're saying stuff like, well, this is an obvious reason why he's, you know, he's an idiot. So Ron Rivera's comments were kind of seized on by a lot of people, and he's since come out and said, I basically put my foot on my, in my mouth. I didn't choose my words carefully enough. But my, the interesting thing to me is this is not the days of, you know, Bear Bryant where you would run people into the ground two a days in the 110-degree heat and, like, basically training camp is done when a couple of guys drop dead type of thing, right? We're in a world now where sports science exists. Everyone's wearing GPS trackers. You can monitor how closely guys are getting to sort of soft tissue injuries and blah, blah, blah. And there is such a thing as overtraining, right? Now, there's also such a thing. Is that of, what they're I – don't, I don't hear them talking about that, though. I hear who? them talking – I don't hear them saying, like, the enemy's got them running extra reps and stuff like that. Was that part of the... I mean, I, I, It's I not a think... physical thing. It's just how he talks to players and no, approaches them with expectations, it was, it was, isn't it? It was physical. Um, but, and, but the point being, there's also such a thing as, well, you're not working hard enough. You need to, you know, <laughs> you've been soft so far. You need to toughen up, and this is how we do it here. And outside of having, again, it's like the training camp interceptions thing, right? Outside of being in the room and having that data... We've no idea which is true, which is closer to the truth that they are actually being worked too hard and are in danger of getting injured or it's simply not productive or they haven't been worked hard enough up until now. And this is what they need, like a kick in the ass to move in the right direction. Like nobody has any idea, but because it's Eric Bieniemy, it becomes a hot topic. Yeah, the whole thing. I mean, no matter what you say about this, it's just a I, I He's interviewed for a ton of head coaching jobs. I don't think it's clear as day that there's absolutely something nefarious going on against Eric Bieniemy. Right. So, people, people, again, there's no, there's no gray area to any sort of analysis. It's either people are against Eric Bieniemy or he never should have had the job. And the truth is probably somewhere in the middle. And it is, it is a bigger story because it's a guy that's been a hot name for a head coaching job for a while and has never gotten one. And he goes to Washington to try something different, right? Get out from the shadow of Patrick Mahomes and Andy Reid, basically, yeah. to go do it himself. And his shot here is Sam Howell develops in year two, becomes a big, a great starter. Then he's interviewing for jobs again. So it's a story because that's the back, that's the history there. I think if it's another, you know, like Mike McDaniel's riding his players too hard or something like, I mean, whatever. Some other Ben Johnson's like riding his players too hard at Lions camp. It's probably not as big of a story mm -hmm. so i think it's just all non non-story stuff but most people came out and be like this is how this is how he's coached all the time and yeah some people like that and some people don't right the same way when teams hire coaches you go from like bill parcells to pete carroll in new england you go from the guy that's you know right tough to play for to the players coach and you always just go back and forth i mean that's just what people do there we go. <laughs> Did we tiptoe around that well enough? Yeah. Because people are sensitive about all, a lot of things that mm. probably aren't as sensitive as they need to be. Yeah. No, I mean, I just, it's funny 
like when Rivera comes out and basically says, oh, sorry, I goofed, like I misspoke there, it's, it shows you how insanely difficult it is to to talk about stuff like this. Like Eric Bieniemy has become this lightning rod issue so that even his own head coach can't just like comment on it without seriously thinking through what he's about to say because if you say even slightly the wrong thing that's now the story it's not even the the thing that started it it's oh like ron rivera thinks eric Bieniemy might need to modify his approach blah blah, blah. charles g in the chat says coaching hires are 75 percent relationship based like it or not and i know there's a lot of reports about the um you know Family members, a lot of family members around the NFL and everything. Mm. But again, you and I work in a business. You understand how important relationships are yeah. and trust. And so, like, I get it. Like, when you're hiring people, you want to hire people that you either have a relationship with or that you feel like you can trust based off relationships. Like, that's just how business right. generally works. The th- yeah, the thing that people don't talk about when it comes to that stuff is there is a fuzzy line between cronyism you know, nepotism and actually having better insight into the character you're hiring for the job, right? Because that's one of the biggest problems, I think, in a lot of places is when you're trying to hire somebody, you get whatever length of time that interview is, right? Whether it's a sort of normal nine to five and your interview might be half an hour or an hour versus an NFL where you're locked in with Jim Ursay playing Madden for 16 hours in a day, whatever. Point being, you have a limited period of time in which to get to know not just the person, but how that person is then, then going to, to handle the interpersonal relationships with hundreds of other people over the next several years, right? That's not easy to do. Like, I would have a much better understanding of how you would react in 58 different hypothetical scenarios than I would a guy that I just talked to for an hour, which is just a reality of it, right? So if I think that you would handle those things better than some random that I just met, I'm going to give you the gig versus them because I have a better understanding of how you approach things, not because I like you more. So, and I'm not saying that's everything. I'm saying that line is blurry in a way that people don't want to acknowledge, right? There is some validity to wanting or to the extra knowledge you gain from knowing somebody. There is also a tendency to just want to give jobs to your buddies and to, you know, relate like guys that you're related to. Where that line is is not talked about anymore. I don't think it's just giving jobs to your buddies. Maybe at the lower levels, like with the, you know, the the, the way things were painted in like the, the documentary um, that Jordan Rodriguez did with- Play callers. Uh, play callers with- um, I mean, Kyle which, Shanahan is a great example, right? But that's, like, but that's like getting people in the door who are your friends. We're talking about head coaching hires or offensive coordinator hires. I don't, I don't think it's just like, oh, my buddy needs to be calling plays here. No, right. But, but, but it's, here's, here's this guy that I came up with who I know, we communicate well, we have a history, therefore I'm bringing him with me. Right. But Kyle Shanahan is a perfect example of this, I think, across the board because he's the beneficiary of nepotism, right? Like Mike Shanahan, a great head coach. Kyle Shanahan gets his start essentially because Mike Shanahan exists. Um, And then Kyle Shanahan has birthed this coaching tree of his buddies who were all in this room together, you know, and they were literally like, they became this like clique in Washington, like these young guys who weren't the same as these old crusty coaches and blah, blah, blah. So it was this specific little ring of cronies, but they've all succeeded. Like you can't look at it and say, this isn't the way the world should work because if it was, we would be hiring better people and everything. Like all of these guys have come out well. So 
what the influence of the nepotism and the cronyism on this coaching tree it might be bad in concept but it's actually created one of the most successful coaching trees in nfl history right which i think is a product of that line bling, being blurry shanahan knows these guys he got grew up with these guys in terms of coaching experience he understands that they're good and he was part of making them good so he has interest in you know pushing those guys forward for jobs and blah 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 in a way he doesn't for like some random other dude that he has no connection to and might not know like it i think that's an important bit of nuance that is always missed in this world of black and white good and bad generally speaking the concept of cronyism and nepotism is not good happy to admit that but there, there's a reason it happens and it isn't purely 100% I just want to look out for my buddies and my relatives. It's like you actually derive benefit from the extra knowledge you have on a person when you're friends with them or when you are related to them. Yeah. I mean, like anything else, there are qualified people that come out of that and there are probably unqualified people yes. who unnecessarily get put into positions that they don't need to be put into. Yes. Are we good with that? Great. We're just hitting all the big topics today. Racism, cronyism, nepotism. We're just knocking them down one after the other. It's awesome. Bengals-Packers practice? Yeah, what else did that to you? Um, so that was from the Packers' perspective. Uh, Bengals pers uh, Packers' perspective, I thought playmakers on offense, Jordan Love playing a patient game. I just want to see if that carries over into actual football games. Packers' backup quarterback situation. Ooh. I mean, because Sean Clifford, um, which, did they draft him in the sixth? He look. Um, he doesn't look ready to play. No. Um, he was taking the snaps for the with the twos. Alex, Mag is it Magoo or Magoo? You kept saying Magoo. I think Magoo. it's Magoo. USFL I, I star. I believe it's pronounced Magoo. MVP, please. USFL MVP. I mean, he's he's the second best quarterback on the team. Yes. I haven't been following the camp reports. I don't know if he's normally the two, and he was just he running only with got the threes signed yesterday. recently. So they, okay. they had. He's the second best quarterback. Was it Danny Etling? They cut like he was the two. They cut him. Sean Clifford became the two essentially by default. Magoo got signed at some point along the process, and I think simply hasn't yet had the chance to overtake Clifford. But based yeah. off what we were looking at. That has to happen. Just trying to be kind here. Okay. Uh, Magoo's the second best quarterback behind Jordan Love. Sean Clifford, he had the, the, the same feels that you had about DTR, but you like you forgot to catch DTR's last season where he improved. <laughs> you had those same feels about Sean Clifford throughout his entire Penn State career, except he was still kind of that like uneven, you know, solid, okay college quarterback who you just didn't completely trust. Um, and he just was holding the ball forever. And um, the Packers either have Magoo as their backup, I think, or they have to look elsewhere. Yeah, so Magoo was only signed July 19th, so he's only been there a couple weeks. Yeah. Um, Bengals-wise, I'm with you, though. Like, the defense was hard-hitting. Um, there was a couple plays where Trey Hendrickson was blowing blowing things up in the backfield, even on three-man rushes. You know how the Bengals will, will do that? They'll drop everybody out, rush three, and um, much like they have the last couple of years, Trey Hendrickson still winning with the three-man rush is just such a cheat code for any kind of defense. DJ Reader had a really good quick win uh, in the pass was, game. Yeah, Reader had some wins in the pass game, but was also like wrecking every single run yeah. play, almost single-handedly. He also got smoked in the face by Ellington Jenkins, who started a couple fights. Yeah. And Reader just, just no-sold it, as I said yesterday on Twitter, but like The Undertaker, just stared him down. So Elton like, Jenkins whatever. was involved in both of the fights, one with DJ Reader. I kind of want to go down today just to see, you know, because usually that stuff... You know, Festers, yeah, coming like, back today for day, 
what, day one, you get some scuffles. Day yeah. two is when people really throw down. Well, That's they, where last year, Vrabel, I was, I was at camp last year when Vrabel was in the middle yeah. of a fight, and then I was at camp when Donald was chucking helmets around yeah. last year. So I, I kind of don't want to miss what's going to happen today. Well, day two, you've had it, if you lost the fight or the scuffle, you've sat there for the, you know, the next 12 hours and thought about it, and you're like, oh, I'm coming, I'm getting, I'm not taking that. So I, you know, Jermaine Pratt was the guy in the first scuffle, I think, with Elton Jenkins, uh, and then DJ Reader was the second one. I think I didn't. I mean, Elton Jenkins left practice early. I don't know if that was voluntary or not. Yeah, go cool off. Right, um, but yeah, he was involved in both of them and walked was out of practice before everybody else. Um, so I thought the Bengals' defense looked really good. Yeah, they gave up a couple balls down the field and a couple plays in the red zone. Um, DJ Turner, I was tweeting about DJ Turner quite a bit. He was the second round rookie out of Michigan, um, was making some jokes because he was, he was a model guy and I liked him. And when he started off with a great training camp, I'm like, there it is. Priors confirmed. DJ Turner is awesome. He's having a great camp. Um, there was a point where he had broken up a pass. He was in tight coverage on a red zone fade against Romeo Dobbs that was overthrown. He was in tight coverage on Luke Musgrave, who again, I want to reiterate for fantasy implications, many formations by the Packers. Are we allowed to say stuff like this? Are we allowed to report on formations? Tis better to ask for forgiveness than permission. Okay, so please forgive me, Packers. Luke Musgrave was split wide quite a bit yesterday. So there was a play where he uh, had a step. Musgrave had a step on uh, Sidney Jones, who's running with the ones for the Bengals. He was not targeted. There was a later rep where Luke Musgrave's lined up out wide. Doesn't have a step on DJ Turner. Turner was right there in his hip pocket, gets overthrown. Um, and as I was joking about DJ Turner's 98 PFF grade during training camp today, mm. yeah, there it was. You could grab the other tweet because, like, three plays later, he gets burnt deep for a 50-yarder against Romeo Dobbs. So Can we just, by the way— The 98 is no longer valid, but uh, DJ Turner overall has had an impressive camp and uh, looked pretty good. DJ Turner in lockstep and tight coverage in the hip pocket of Luke Musgrave. DJ Turner is five foot eleven and 181 pounds. Yeah. Luke Musgrave is six foot six and two hundred and fifty-four pounds. Yeah, he's big, so he's looks big. Seven yeah. inches shorter, plus whatever the hell like wingspan that generates, and seventy pounds lighter, and was covering the guy like a blanket down the sideline. Yeah, he did a good job there. And that's one of those like Jordan Love overthrows it. He's not trying to overthrow it, but when you have that matchup, you gotta at least give your guy a shot. You know, it's it's okay to throw an imperfect Right When you throw a deep ball, you want to hit a guy in stride, obviously. But when you have that type of mismatch, it's okay to throw more of a jump ball. It's okay to underthrow it a little bit and let Musgrave go up and get it over Turner. But he, uh, Love just completely overthrew him on that particular play. Mm-hmm. Um, so DJ Turner playing pretty well overall was a takeaway for me. And he got some run with the ones. So I think he's kind of battling Sidney Jones for that cornerback spot opposite Cam Taylor-Britt. Yeah. No, he looked pretty good. What else for you? A model guy. Yeah. I didn't love him in the pre-draft process, but well, he, he did look pretty handy yesterday. It's funny because I, I didn't love him watching him on film either. It's just right. data's good. Now he also got wrecked by Dobbs, though, you know. Yeah, he did on that one play. Back. He does run really fast, but he gives up a little bit too much room and press sometimes, so Dobbs stacked him and just ran away. Um, so, yeah, I think the data was strong for DJ Turner, but I get some of the uh, you know some of the hesitation based off of the Michigan film. There was, there was some freak plays on there, and there was some not-so-good stuff. Did you have any other takeaways? 
No, I think we've kind of covered everything. It was, I mean, DJ Reader really stood out. Uh, generally, that Bengals defense, like it, it, it ebbed and flowed a little bit over practice. But for the second year in a row, I thought the Bengals defense was generally suffocating the opposing offense. Um, they did it to the Rams. Like it really stood out a year ago, and this was before we knew that the Rams stank. But what was the like the league's best offense the year before came into Cincinnati and couldn't get a pass away without it being broken up or challenged in the air by Bengals defense um same thing was happening yesterday for large periods of it they you know there was the big touchdown to Dobbs there were a few of those red zone plays where Green Bay had some more success but again if that was sort of extrapolated out over a game situation I that would not have been a good day for the Packers offense I want to get to uh, the Brown the move the Browns made and also do a little week one preview it'll be like a preview show for us but if you haven't heard already it's smooth sack summer Sam <laughs> smooth sack summer Sam when you're playing in the summer sun make sure you're escaped from pubes to bum smooth just that's like right this is the summer to keep your balls cool while still looking hot with manscaped the leaders in below the waist grooming are making sure we all have a ball this summer by giving our pants partners everything they need to stay fresh dive head first into smooth sack summer Sam by going to manscaped.com for 20% off plus free shipping with our code PFF the Manscaped Performance Package 4.0. It has everything you need to prepare for that summer bod, which is almost over, by the way, the summer, which is sad. They've built the ultimate grooming bundle for your summer grooming. So get in right now. The Lawnmower 4.0 trimmer features a cutting-edge ceramic blade to reduce grooming accidents thanks to their advanced skin-safe technology. Lawnmower 4.0 is a 7,000 RPM motor, new multifunction on-off switch, and it gives you the ability to turn the 4,000 LED spotlight on and off when needed for a more precise shave. Did I mention the trimmer is also waterproof? Beach, lake, or shower, the razor will work anywhere. Manscaped even threw in two free gifts to their Performance Package 4.0. It's the Manscaped Boxers and the Shed Travel Bag. So get 20% off plus free shipping with the code PFF at manscaped.com. That's 20% off plus free shipping with the code PFF. Manscaped.com. It's smooth sack summer, boys. Get on board or get left behind. Did you edit the read live? Maybe. <laughs> I didn't want to say that part again. Really? Yeah. Okay. Because it's just a nice little, uh, it's a bit of poetry from the read. And you, you chopped it right out. The devouring even the strongest pubes yeah. part? Well, there you go. It's in. Okay. It will do that. The 4.0. You want to do the read next time? You do the read. I'm just, look, the, the read is artistry. It doesn't need you polishing it up on your, you know, the top of your head. True. The read people do a great job at Manscaped. Uh, the Browns have signed Shelby Harris. Yeah. To their defensive Another line. Another defensive line addition. We were praising how much they'd overhaul that group on our uh, AFC, well, the North's preview show. Um, and they weren't finished. They keep going. So now Shelby Harris, who arguably, I mean, he starts for them, right? He sits, he's probably, I mean, he's better than Jordan Elliott on, on NFL evidence. Um, much as we liked Elliott coming into the draft, he's shown almost nothing to suggest that. So I, I think Maurice Hurst had a good shot of starting over Jordan Elliott. Shelby Harris is probably the best, the best player they have to try and play three tech, right? Yeah, I think so. He's uh, he was not as good last year, right? With uh, no, and and he Seattle, hasn't been. But he's got a history of pretty good, just underrated performance, yeah. especially when he was with Denver. And Shelby Harris has not been a prototypical three technique at, in any by any stretch of the imagination himself. Like he has played a lot of his snaps in a variety of different alignments, but I wouldn't say that he's principally always been a like a. The standard three technique. Sorry, he was fine last year. 74 grade last year. It was uh, 2021. was the only grade he's had uh, not in, not 70 or better. And we're talking about a guy who's he had a 90 grade in 2018, an 88 grade in 2020, 74.8 last year. 
solid run defender, solid pass rusher. Like those are the types of moves for relatively cheap money. You know, you just it's a one one year deal, right? I mean, fine. Yeah. At this well, point in his career, you get one year of Shelby Harris, and you just add that to the mix where they've added so much to that line. Um, this isn't you know like every move, not like, not like one move's putting you to the Super Bowl or anything, but the totality of the moves on the D line for the Browns, this just adds to a really good offseason. But like August the 9th, without breaking the bank, you're able to bring in a guy who should start for you and be an upgrade at a significant position along the defensive line. I mean, that is unquestionably a great move. I mean, this is like, you know, what teams were doing last year, like Philadelphia picking up James Bradbury, who ends up being one of their most important players on defense without breaking the bank. Like, this is the kind of move that can make the difference even in August. Like, we go through this offseason of freeding frenzy with free agency for a co- for like a week and then it's all draft focus and then there's the kind of couple of big moves that happen but you can still make serious impactful moves in August with the guys that are sort of sitting there out in the street waiting for this kind of thing to happen yeah I think it's a very good move you add him with Dalvin Tomlinson and uh, believe it or not similar production from those two guys over mm-hmm. the last couple of years quietly different roles but right. similar type of production there so like that for the browns quite a bit all right do you want to, let's go uh game by game and preview game week one game no definitely not we're not doing that Thank it God. is a thursday like maybe we should practice for the season thursday preview show yeah i'll tell you my endurance i mean I, two and a half hour show yesterday i just wasn't ready for it <laughs> we we made it halfway through i'm like man we've lost is... we haven't been working out over the off season no i just it was it was a grind man and then we went to practice. Like I was, I was worn down. By the end of practice, like I forget how much just standing around takes it out of you. Yeah, I was tired by the end of by the end of camp. It's rough. Got home and I'm like, I don't want to write my article. Yeah, I don't want to go to every uh, training camp. Yeah, it's a grind, man. It's rough. You think it's tough on the players? We need that VIP level status where you get like a chair or uh, your own cart. You know, Chris, they wheel him out there. He doesn't have to walk or stand. Yeah, yeah. they they drive him out in a cart because he's a Bengals great. Last year we were at practice. Bengals Rams and we get there at the exact same time as Chris mm. like on the sidewalk right hey Chris didn't know you were here and uh they they roll out the red carpet for him to go through the players entrance yeah and then they looked at us they were like oh the uh, the media entrance is it's down there it's a block up <laughs> we're like well we can't just go in like the field's right there we can't just go in with nope. Chris. no just walk a block this is for and go in through the media entrance. important people you are not important. And Chris people. comes in, they throw him in a golf cart, and he's just driving around. And, uh, and we, had to go, we had to walk a block just to get in. Yep. So we could walk back to the, toward the entrance where we, you know, maybe become a Bengals Hall of Famer or something. You can do whatever you want. It's probably tricky from this point. Yeah, I don't think your shot's very good. Feel, I mean, that's the kind of thing I think you need to start doing earlier in your life. Chad Johnson was there yesterday? Yeah, right? I saw that. And the Madden Cruiser. He was in the Madden Cruiser. I mean, I saw him outside the front of the Madden Cruiser. I don't know if he was in the Madden Cruiser. And shout out to my friends at Roll On In. They were supplying the post-game meal, post-practice meal for the Green Bay Packers. Yeah, it looked so good. S- so we snuck into there as well. Roll On In, little have any, uh, but it looked good. Local, local restaurant here in Cincinnati, and uh, it was all my friends serving the Packers. They were there. Mm-hmm. So anyway, let's go. Uh, what are you looking for in, in preseason week one? It's exciting. First, first look at several NFL players. Tonight we got two games, Patriots, Texans, and Vikings, Seahawks. 
Yeah. I mean, the, the big question is always <laughs> who the hell is playing in these games. Like, Hall of Fame game, I said, we started up the show with, it was the big list of these are the players that will not be playing tonight. And it was basically everybody you've ever heard of. But you got left with players like Dewan Jones, you know, an, an intriguing prospect, a first-round talent, a guy who ended up playing 74 snaps of that first game. That's interesting. Um, so it's, it's basically that. It's like, let's see who we're left with. And then you know, figure out what we can see from these guys because you will be left with some interesting players in every single game. It's just not always easy to tell right from, uh, from the offset who they're going to be. So tonight in particular, we get to see C.J. Stroud's debut. Hopefully. You just, you're not even going to name any players because you really don't know. I'm just saying. It, what's the point in doing 10 minutes in C.J. Stroud's debut and it turns out he's not going to play? Because then you copy and paste it for next week when he for his actual. We know C.J. Stroud's play. C.J. Stroud's playing tonight. He's starting for the Texans. You sure? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Anthony Richardson has just been announced. Is the is going to start? Okay. Then yes, yeah, C.J. Stroud. That will be interesting. Tank Dell. Yes. Tonight for Houston. Tank Dell. And uh, Xavier Hutchinson. What about um, yeah Xavier Hutchinson? Uh, Christian Gonzalez for the Patriots. Mm-hmm. Get to see Gonzalez here tonight. And then uh, Ivan Pace Jr., who we mentioned on the show yesterday for the Vikings, get to see him. The Patriots are definitely the type of team that will make their rookies play, you know, as a sort of punishment. Welcome to the NFL. You're still in your 50s number, and you're going to play in preseason. I think they've graduated from the 50s. No, uh, now? I mean, they Jackson Smith and Jigba, I hope, is going to play for Seattle. I haven't looked into that one specifically, <laughs> but I'd like to see him for Seattle uh-huh. tonight. Yeah. Are you going to name any players for the segment? Are you God, literally no. going to say, I don't know who's going to play? Don't know who's and then play. we have a whole segment of the podcast that is non existent. That's it. Yeah. That's exactly what it is. Because I had a list. I'd love to see Jordan Addison play football. Who knows if that'll happen? He's going to play. Yeah. Just say the ones you I'd want. love to see Makai Blackman play football. Who knows if that'll happen? Gordon says he wants to see Trey Hawkins, the third, who's been getting a lot of, uh, a lot of attention for the Giants at corner. Yeah. I mean, you want to see your guy Ivan Pace. Yep, I mentioned Ivan Pace. I want to see him with the Vikings, for sure. Who has been running with the ones at times. That's right. Yeah. So you're really going to add nothing to this whatsoever? Yeah, nothing. I got, I got, I got nothing to add. When I proposed this as a segment yeah. before the show. It's a great segment. It's just a short one where you I didn't offer think, very little. Hey, maybe I could contribute to this. I mean, I, I, I have contributed. Just we get to see Baker Mayfield and Kyle Trask. On a limited basis. Yeah. Baker Mayfield and Kyle. Maybe Baker Mayfield was just testing boundaries in preseason or in, in training camp, and now he's locked in. He's found where the line is. So, like, the real story there is if, if Trask looks different, right? If Trask looks different than he has previously, I think we all have a pretty good idea of what Baker Mayfield is, is which we, is, well, we don't know what he is because he just will be different every single week. But it will probably end up unsatisfying. Well, I think they. I think Baker has now settled into this this world of being an inaccurate NFL quarterback who does make more mistakes than, or at least has developed a reputation of making more mistakes than is acceptable. And actually, when you look at his numbers, his turnover-worthy play rate has not been that high. It's it's more basic inaccuracy that's been his problem. But I think that's now how he's viewed, including by the Buccaneers at this point, who have watched him in training camp making too many of these bad mistakes. Which has opened the door, I think, for Kyle Trask to win that job if he simply doesn't do that. So Trask doesn't even need to be good if he simply doesn't make the mistakes. Like if Trask works on being the most conservative 
uh, game-managing quarterback on the spectrum and just doesn't throw the ball to a linebacker, he's got a pretty good chance of winning that job by default, by not being Baker Mayfield. And I actually think that's kind of what his approach is. Like, I've heard comments of him talking about how he's focusing on, you know, not making mistakes and blah, blah, blah. So that's how he wins the job. Like, if they go out, Baker makes a mistake. If Kyle Trask simply doesn't throw the ball to a deep to a defender, he has a leg up in winning that job. Oh, I could absolutely see that playing playing out again. But the, the reports out of Bucks camp that I after I went on my little worthless though they are. Yes, yeah. thank you. Take them for what it's worth. <laughs> uh, Baker Mayfield's been more aggressive, throwing the ball down the field has more picks. Yeah, Kyle Trask, more conservative, has one pick or whatever the. But I think that's last number, two th- or whatever the number is. I think that's Trask by design, like setting out his stall as the anti Baker Mayfield. Like you have already soured on this guy. I am simply presenting myself as not him. That's my selling. That's my sales pitch of myself to you, the my team. I am not Baker Mayfield. Uh, Bryce Young is going to start for the Panthers. Get to yes. look, get a first look at Bryce Young and Jonathan Mingo. Like, you could just make stuff up here, Sam. Oh, yeah? Just list your favorite players. Like, pretend it's the draft show, list your favorite players, and then say, I'm excited to see their debuts this weekend. And then just hope they play football this weekend. Yes. Yeah. I want to... That's it. I want to... Look, that we. <laughs> it's all the players we like to the draft process. Watch them in preseason. It'll be fun for everybody. I want to go on to something else. I have a new topic. Oh. Okay. Because we're driven by the numbers here at PFF, right? Data across the board. And my current numbers says that this is a hot-button topic. <laughs> oh, you uh, the question that you yeah, posed yeah. yesterday? So I tweeted yesterday, if you forget longevity, who was the greatest NFL player of all time at their peak? And the people on Twitter have had takes, have had opinions. have been dropping them in left, right, and center. I'm curious what your opinion is. I think it's still Tom Brady. I think you're out of your mind. You can look at the numbers. Yes. He, he, he's got five-year samples that are as good, if not better, than Peyton Manning, Patrick Mahomes, whoever else you want to put out there. Yeah, I mean, the answer is not a quarterback. Yeah, that's fine. I'm, but There's no way, no way that but Brady still has been the, the greatest NFL player at their peak in He's been the best history. quarterback, and that's still the most important and valuable position, so that kind of defaults to. Yeah, but all lists like this, you have to assume – so let's All agree it's Brady at quarterback, and then I'll get your takes on non-quarterbacks. I'm not sure I'm agreeing with that either, but okay. I think you could actually take two different five-year samples of Brady and make a case if we're just making up five-year samples. <laughs> two, year, two different five-year well, samples where you can like, make a case what do you that deem? those peaks are better than any quarterback, whether you're talking about just on-field performance or you know, plus acc- accolades and you know, like 14 to 18 with you know, going to four Super Bowls, winning three. Well, that's the thing. Being the best like, quarterback in the NFL by far during that period. You have to sit Or 07 to 12 for Brady. So I think I'm going to go with Tom Brady, regardless of position. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then peak, you could make, I mean, is it five years? Is it eight years? Like, what is it? Well, that's the thing. It's like, what is a, what is a peak? I mean, to me, a peak is a much shorter period of time, certainly than eight years and probably a five. Like, it's more of a, it's more of an intangible concept of like, how good was this player? Not just sure. for a game. A game isn't a peak. Like, a game is just random ass luck. That's why somebody said Nick Foles. Right. Yeah. yeah. I said Chris Borland. He did it for for two games. But, like, you know, Flipper Anderson is whatever, 336 yards or whatever. That's not a game. Of course it's not a game. That's one game. Or, uh, you know, the quarterback whose name's escaped me threw for 550 yards. Like, that's not a. Or Van Brocklin. Right. 
A peak is like a some kind of sustained period of play where a guy was that damn good. Um, but I'm willing to concede that that can be a movable goalpost. Like that, it's, there's no defined number of games. Um, but I also don't think it needs to last for like five years or whatever to be a peak. Um, to me, it's definitely not a quarterback. Like I don't think any quarterback had the level because it. To me, the easiest way of measuring these things, like greatness, is how much better were you than the next guy at what it is you do. And no quarterback has ever been that far ahead of like the next option. So like Brady, yeah, you can construct these statistical cases that say Brady was the best player over X period of time. But the gap between him and Peyton Manning and Dan Marino and Aaron Rodgers and Patrick Mahomes, eh, it's pretty close. It's negligible if it's there at all. I don't, the same isn't true for other positions where like the gap between that dude and the next guy is seismic. Yeah, so while, while we're on it, before we move on to the non-quarterback stuff, I want to move to, um, I'm going to start pursuing something different here. EPA per play for oh, quarterbacks. I think, I think we've overrated EPA per play for quarterbacks, not just because it's a team stat, uh-huh. but if you were going to use EPA, I think you should do it at a game or season level. I think you for quarterbacks because the per place because if you've got more on your plate as the quarterback you're gonna provide more value to your team right so like Russell Wilson has some of those games where he throws the ball 25 times like a ridiculous EPA per play rate but what's more valuable for the team Russell Wilson throwing 25 times or a Brady or Rodgers or Breeze throwing the ball 45 times and maybe not having the same per play rate because they're going to throw more underneath stuff or whatever it might be, but it's still better than running the ball. So EPA per game or more of the cumulative aspect for the quarterback because it's not like you had more opportunities. It's more we put more on your plate, right? So the volume thing, I think, is um, something we should lean into. And again, that's where I think that, I think that also helps like the Bradys and Paytons and Mahomes stand out, even against, say, like an Aaron Rodgers because those – I think Brady, Peyton, and Mahomes have always had more on their plate than even Aaron Rodgers has through the years. So, just throwing that out there. Okay, give me your what's what what are you what were you thinking when you asked this? Besides, I want some some cheap traction on Twitter. I was interested in the answer of the question. No, no, no. You were just looking for some impressions. I find that we focus too much on longevity when we start to talk about greatness and the best ever. Uh, To me, greatness and the best has always been more interesting in terms of who hit insane peaks, even if it didn't last. And I think that uh, that is true across all sports. I've always been more drawn to the guy who was like the, the incredible flame that burned out fast versus the dude that just trucked on burning for 25 years and therefore became the greatest almost by default i hear your point i think there's something to i would agree with that in the sense where there there, there are some players who put like eight years of mediocre play out there or whatever that get overrated but i still think longevity means something so not like frank gore's averaging 3.9 yards per carry for the last 12 years of his career nothing like that sorry frank i know it's a little better than that but being very very good for a long time, even if you're not There's merit playing at the elite level, I think is extremely valuable in any sort of GOAT discussion or whatever it might be. Now, who are the peaks? What is it that you're 
yeah, look, there's looking at here. There's merit to it. I'm not saying it's a worthless thing, but I think we focus way too much on it. And I'm wa- wa- far more interested in the guys that hit the highest level. So ever. now I'm interested in who your <coughs> players are. Who are you thinking about here? So wide receiver is an interesting one, right? And not a consensus. This there's a lot of people have suggested a lot of receivers for wide receiver. Jerry Rice remains in the conversation for a lot of people. Calvin Johnson jumps up to the top when you talk about just peaks. Um, Antonio Brown, or the late Austin Gale, tweet. He, he didn't even, I don't think he even replied to the tweet. He, he messaged me specifically, my tweet, and then said the answer is Antonio Brown, like seasons 2014 to 16 or something. Um, so there's a lot of different opinions. I don't think I've ever seen a wide receiver. Uh, uh, Sterling Sharp got a few comments as well. Sterling Sharp, huh? I don't think I've ever seen a wide receiver more dominant over a period of time than Randy Moss early in his career. And interestingly, you know, people have said, oh, 2007 Brady is the greatest performance of all time. And other people, of which I think I agree, have said that Brady wasn't even the best Patriot on the 2007 offense. Randy Moss was. Now, I think I probably agree with that. I also think that 2007 Randy Moss, even though that's the year he set the 23 touchdown single season record, was not close to the best Randy Moss the NFL saw. That was the first few years of Randy Moss in Minnesota where he was basically uncoverable and changed the way defenses played him. And the Vikings simply never tapped into that to the fullest potential. But that guy, I think, is the greatest, the most dominant wide receiver stretch the game has ever seen. Let's put some perspective to that. Randy Moss kicks off his career with 17 touchdowns. As a rookie. As a rookie. 1998. Averaging 19 yards per reception. On how many catches? 69 catches. Right. <laughs> so touchdowns let's, but like, this is catches. part of that story, right? So there's pre Randy ratio, Randy Moss. Yeah. Right. So 98, 69 catches, 17 touchdowns. Then here are his receptions 69, 80, 77, 82. Never high volume. Always big plays, though. 19 per catch, 17.7, 18.7, and then 15. In 2001, touchdowns, 17, 11, 15, 10. So other than the reception totals, yards per reception, touchdowns, yards, right? Unbelievable numbers. 2002 hits, and the same, uh, Mike Tice, mm-hmm. our friend Nate's dad, has the same idea you're having. Well, we should target Randy Moss more. Yeah. And so they start to feed him the ball. He gets his 106 catches, right? Way more than he's ever had. But he's only like 12.7 yards per catch. Like you don't have the same real production. But the next year he goes 111 catches, 14.7 per yard uh, per reception, over 1600 yards, which was a career high, and 17 touchdowns again. That stretch up to 03 probably, and even into 04, his his entire first run with Minnesota before he went back in 2010 for right. a little bit. That could be the stretch that we're talking about for a receiver. Yep, and then like four years later, he decides <laughs> to catch twenty three with Brady in New England. Mm-hmm. Um, for defense, I think in terms of pass rushers, you know, interior or uh, edge rushers, I mean obviously the two recent ones, those kind of peaks of Aaron Donald and JJ Watt. You know, the general consensus is that JJ Watt's peak was higher than Aaron Donald. I'm not 100% sure that's true. I think they're similar. I think they're really close. Watt's looks better because he had sacks, but he played a lot more on the edge where you get more sacks. So it's. It's going to look that way. I don't actually know that there was that much difference between the two peaks. But anyway, those two 
Reggie White had a peak. I mean, Reggie White had 21 sacks in a 12-game season. Like yeah. He had a peak where he had a 12-game season with 21 sacks. Uh, the following season, he had 18 sacks. Like that's, that's a pretty impressive number in a two-year span. And it wasn't just a two-year span for Reggie White. The previous season, before the 21, he had 18, blah, blah, blah. Reggie White was freaking dominant. Lawrence Taylor was freaking dominant. And I struggle a lot of times with guys who... There's again, it's there's merit to guys who change the game. You know, it came along and he was something the league wasn't prepared for, and that they, they changed the game. On the other hand, if that guy then shows up ten years later, what does that look like? Like now that the game is changed, are you as effective as you would have been when you were beating up on yeah, guys? Yeah, you got to give them. I, I think you have to give them credit <laughs> for for the for changing the game. I think you do as well, but I I do think it's a. It's an interesting piece of context that, like, there were some people that came along that if you planted them back in a period of time where the game simply wasn't prepared for that, would have looked different. You know what I mean? Like, I, I don't know. I struggle. Like, are you just lucky that you were the first to come along that was like that? Like Micah Parsons, right? Transport Micah Parsons back into the mid-'80s. There's not a human in the, in the NFL that can block Micah Parsons. We know all the issues with transporting people. I mean, you're talking to like... Other than it being science fiction? Different nutrition, different workouts, like just all that stuff. Right, but the point... I mean, Lawrence Taylor's workouts, you know, his extracurricular activities may not have been the... He was on the Johnny football spectrum of extracurricular workouts. Might might make it more impressive. Yeah. No, sure. But my point being, I mean, forget the the nutrition and workout part of it. Like, simply taking this guy and putting him in the 80s is unstoppable. Like how much and it's just why? luck that you were born in a different era why was it so much easier in the 80s why because the game wasn't prepared for like elite edge rushers play aligning yeah, you at that and level and i know right. you got deep drops and all that stuff so i'm gonna i want to make this point and there's it's like a nuanced pff grading type of thing mm. i think it's it's easier for pass rushers to feel dominant right when we see the jj watt and the aaron donald and then I saw a little bit of Bruce Smith. I certainly haven't watched Bruce Smith from like an analytical eye. Right. But remember last year I said I watched the 88 game against the Bengals where he's going against Anthony Munoz, mm-hmm. who is the prototype. Everybody, is, is, this Anthony, is this the next Anthony Munoz? Bruce Smith was whooping him a couple times for sacks, for missed sacks. Bruce Smith was whooping him. So my point here is, Aaron Donald, multiple years of 93, 94, 95 grades. Same thing with J.J. Watt. My quick eye test tells me Bruce Smith, Reggie White would have been the same. They would have been 94, 95 guys. I think that position is more conducive to having a player, one or two players every 10 years who are better than everybody and are dominant. I, do, I think the quarterback position is – it's harder to do that because there's other things at play, right? So the way we grade, it's our, the best work that we do, I think, is isolating pass rushers and pass blockers and being able to, you know, really hone in on their wins and losses. Where the quarterback position, we do a good job of it, but the position, the nature of the position means there's got to be more reliance on other people, right? Because when, when we're talking GOAT quarterback lists and stuff, and you're talking about a Tom Brady, he did get to throw to a Gronk in a couple years of Randy Moss. Joe Montana did get to throw to Jerry Rice. Patrick Mahomes has gotten to throw to Tyreek Hill 
and Travis Kelsey, right? There's some dependency there. Therefore, I think it's harder for the quarterbacks to just be in like a different echelon in whatever time period you're talking about. It's harder for them to, to do that. So I, think it's, so I think when we talk peak, the way we view the game, I think we're more inclined to say, hey, it's J.J. Watt, it's Aaron Donald, reverse a few years, and it's Bruce Smith, and it's Reggie White. It's like easier to isolate those guys. Mm-hmm. I think Darrell Revis' peak deserves. So 9 Revis is as good as the – I think the best cornerback, the best sort of proven, quantified cornerback performance over a single season we've seen. But by the way, I did see the, I was surfing last night and I saw Charles Woodson won Defensive Player of the Year that year in 2009. And I don't think that was egregious. I would pick Revis. But dude, Woodson had three defensive touchdowns, nine picks, and he was playing the slot. He was like a linebacker slash safety slash corner. If Revis had the best corner season we've ever seen since 2006, I don't know what Woodson's grade ended up being. He probably missed a few tackles and it killed his grade. But like impact-wise, Woodson's 09 has to be top three that we've ever seen. Yeah, charted or whatever. But, so I don't like that. Right. That was pretty cool too. The problem with corner is you know how you compare a season like that 09 Revis, where you know we all not just us at PFF, but like the NFL has the information of you see the the who's who of receivers he went up against and what they you know, got against Revis, not just in the game. Um, and it's incredible. Like, it's, it's obvious how good that was. But, like, how does that compare to the best year Deion Sanders had where we don't have that information? Or Mel Blunt, who was so dominant they changed the rules because he was beating up wide receivers. Like, Mel Blunt has a pretty good argument that, I mean, there's not, there's never been another corner, really, who was so dominant during their peak that they actually changed the damn rules to stop him doing it. Like, he... He was destroying passing. And they were like, no, nah, this can't fly. You can't do this anymore. This is too much. We're going to change it. Like, um, by similar argument, you could, I, you could probably make the case that Deacon Jones was one of the most dominant peaks at a, as a pass rusher we've ever seen. He was so freaking dominant. His move, the head slap, was so unstoppable, we had to stop people head slapping. I think you could go too far with the this guy changed the game because the game was so young and different. You could probably go too far but that's, with some of that that's stuff. That's the problem with But it is so, an interesting two, perspective. Two running backs that I think are really interesting. Jim Brown, who I've always sort of struggled with, again, how much was just him being outsized in, in his era and dominant because of that. But, like, Jim Brown's dominance pretty much speaks for itself. Like, he still holds a bunch of NFL records, and he was playing in the 1960s. Um, Gail Sayers. Gail Sayers effectively played five seasons in the NFL and was an all-pro at every single one of those seasons. I mean, <laughs> that's about as dominant as it yeah. gets. Do you have Barry? Barry was definitely, yeah. Cause his, so he's kind of like Moss, right? Where early it was incredible. No, I don't want to say that there was like a lull, but you also have <coughs> his 2,000-yard season came in, what, 97? Yeah. And... So, like, 10 years into his career. Just like Moss has his, his best statistical year in, you know, year 10. Barry was an interesting one because this is the kind of thing, I think, that gets lost in time. Um, when you rewind, anyone old enough to remember Barry Sanders playing the first time around, when you would hear him being talked about, he was feared. Like, defenses feared Barry Sanders. They were terrified of the one play where they switched off or somebody goofed, somebody wasn't paying attention to the backside cutback, and Barry Sanders would make every single one of them look like an idiot. Nobody ever feared that for Emmitt Smith. 
you know? And Barry Sanders and Emmitt Smith are basically, like, exact contemporaries, like one year different, I think, when they came into the NFL. And Emmitt Smith, obviously, is the all-time leading rusher in NFL history, you know, an NFL great, blah, blah, blah. But the difference at the time, and this is what gets sort of lost in history, is defenses were terrified of Barry Sanders individually. Nobody was ever terrified of Emmett Smith individually. It was like, yeah, if we don't, if we're not disciplined, he can have some success, and that run game is dominant in Dallas. But they're not like preparing for that game, bricking it that they might get made to look like an idiot on national TV the way Barry Sanders would. And that was like Moss had that as well. Defenses were terrified of what Randy Moss could and would do to them in the course of a game. That, I think, is a sort of signal of greatness. Like, if, if you're actively terrified of the opposing dude, he's probably really good. You get that from some of the top QBs too, right? You get those... You've got, the t- you've got teammates who are like, just get, just get the ball to Tom. Right. Just get the ball to Joe. They'll, and they're going to win the actual game for us, right? So I think you get that from those, from those great players. I think that's a good criteria, though. Scariness. Right of the uh, either or, or confidence from your teammates or scariness from from opponents. And the other thing when you're doing all these things is like the the further back you go, the more nebulous and theoretical the argument is in the first place. I mean, I can't comment. Like you're going to bring up uh, Don Hudson. Don Hudson, of yeah. course. Like I don't want to bring up. Nobody knows. Nobody knows. Like all we have is the evidence that Don Hudson's yeah. numbers relative They're to really everybody cool else stats. were Wait. like off the freaking charts. But like. Like, I want to take the opposite of the pro- approach of whatever the – was it the NFL 100? Where it was, like, all guys that were, like, pre-1960. Yeah. Yeah, I want to take the opposite approach of that. I don't try to get stuff And try to get players that, like, we're not just <laughs> looking at pro football reference. We're, we actually have some feel for guys that we take, saw. I don't want to take the opposite approach because I think that's equally flawed where you're just like, no, the only players that have any merit are guys that played after 1985. Like, that – to me, it doesn't make any sense either. There's like, just way fewer teams. All the, like, listen, it's not that. Like, that's not my concern. My concern is not the flaws of evaluating players at that period of time. Like, you know, there are fewer teams. The schemes are different. Like, all those kinds of things. My problem is simply the number of people that are still alive that actually have an idea about what the truth was is tiny. We just don't know. Like, it could be that Don Hudson is the most dominant single human being that's ever played in the NFL, right? But the number of people that actually have a valid opinion on that is probably, like, you can count them on one hand now. That's mostly my point, which is why I'm saying please don't bring up Don Hudson. I just, it's... it's Tell me somebody that you I think you have to bring him up. I just, my point is, is we don't know. Because I think these are the problems with... Like, when you start talking about Barry Sanders, that fear thing, right? If you were born after 1998 or whatever, like you don't know that. You can read about it, maybe, but it involves somebody actually putting that down in paper. We at least have highlights. We have YouTube highlights. Yeah, but that doesn't, like, anybody can create a highlight reel that looks amazing. You and I were tasked with creating a highlight reel for Keonta Dawson that made him look like a pro bowler. Like, Hmm. highlight reels by their nature lie. The point being... If you didn't live through it at the time, it's very difficult to appreciate that, that concept of teams were terrified of that dude because it relies on secondhand information and secondary sources that documented it in the first place, which they may or may not have. So if you're coming and, and, you know, we, you and I lived through Barry Sanders and can appreciate that, but you and I did not live through, you know, pick a guy from the 70s or the 80s or whatever. So... 
do we just not have a valid opinion on those guys? Like, that's the problem with all this stuff. Sometimes, yeah. Sometimes you don't have a valid. That's why when, when Austin answers things, it's guys from the last 10 years. <laughs> yeah. Right? When like, uh, our friend Anthony Trash said that Tyree Kill's the best deep threat of all time mm, the other, the other uh, yeah. couple of years ago, um, which I don't think is like, it's not like an egregious comment, but it certainly comes across as like, you've only seen the last 10 years of football. Right. I mean, if that's a comment a man makes that didn't live through the Randy Moss career. Yeah. Or but, that's not I the mean, start of it. You could make that. You might be able to make the case for Tyreek. I mean, I think you could make the case that Tyreek Hill is Barry Sanders, Randy Moss level of scary on the football field. Yeah. The problem because if you give him one step, if you miss the jam at the line of scrimmage, whatever it might be, Tyreek Hill's done. Like he, he's gone. And I, I'd also make this point with Tyreek Hill that I've made before. I think you can create whichever receiver you want yes. out of Tyreek Hill. That is a you big can, selling point for him. You can make him a 70-catch, 20 yards per reception guy. You can make him a 130-catch guy, whatever, that creates after. You can make him whatever you want. You can make him a uber slot. You can make him just an outside weapon. You can make him a you know, change of pace guy, whatever it is. And Tyreek Hill has the skill set to execute that. Right. But so, you know, you and I – can compare him to Randy Moss, but then you get into this world of like, well, how you know, like, there are players you go back far enough and you can't. Like Bob Hayes, who was a, an Olympic caliber sprinter, then goes to the Dallas Cowboys, still the only player to have an Olympic gold medal and a Super Bowl ring, I think. Um, Bob Hayes had 7,400 yards and 71 touchdowns as another one of those deep threats that changed the game. Like effectively, teams had to invent his own coverage because nobody could run with Bob Hayes. Nobody, I don't think, I mean, certainly not us, but there's very few people alive that have the first-hand experience, and that's before you get to the idea of how much that warps with memory, et cetera, of knowing was Bob Hayes more or less terrifying and destructive than Randy Moss and Tyreek Hill? Who knows? No idea. I know, which is why I didn't think we needed <coughs> to bring up Bob Hayes and Don Hudson. And you got to bring them up. You gotta give Bullet Bob the man. You gotta tip the cap to Otto Graham. I, it's Otto Graham. Like there's Browns fans out. Ah, oh, Otto Graham is my my hero. Mm -hmm. Like you're 32 years old. How's he your hero? Stop it. You gotta tip the cap to the old fellas. Beady feathers. <laughs> <laughs> Just list the NFL 100 team. <laughs> Beady feathers. There's some great names if you go back as well. Beady feathers was. Bill Brant was on that panel, right? Picking all the players. Gil? Like the I would hope so. I mean, he's one of the few people that was old enough to have seen them all. Gil, can you make it NFL 100? Yeah. It's like Lawrence Taylor, Tom Brady, Jerry Rice, and everybody pre-1960. Love it. That'd be the list. Love it. All right. Good show. You hijacked it. That was good. Yeah. Go respond to Sam's tweet so he gets more impressions. Mm. Get that Elon money. Get that Elon money. Going to the moon, baby. So, yeah. Preseason football. And, then, so, and Bullet Bob Hayes. Football this weekend. Want? Here's our tentative plan. Uh, Monday, we're going to recap the preseason. We're going to talk about whatever the heck happened here in preseason week one. All our top takeaways. We'll react. We'll overreact. We'll let you overreact. Whatever you see this weekend is the most important thing for rookies' careers. The first impression is the only impression because it's the only one we'll have. Hmm. And we'll talk about that Monday morning, particularly with the rookies. Next week, I think we're trying to get to Detroit for uh, – Lions Jags practice. If you guys get a GoFundMe for like a hotel room or something like that, so we can stay over. Um, yeah, next week's schedule might be a bit messed up because we might be on the road slash at practice during the usual yeah. show time. 
And yesterday we did our first season preview, AFC and NFC North. We're going to slow roll those over the next few weeks. Slow roll. Slow roll, probably about one a week. So just be ready. Let them, let them build up. You know, give you some time. Percolate even. Um, and give us some time to work up to those two-and-a-half-hour shows, mm. the grind of the season He's that, back we're, that we're getting ready for. So. We're, on a, we're on a pitch count. We are on a pitch count. Did you see the guy throw the no-hitter last night? No. What's his face? First start in Philadelphia. Yeah. And he threw 125 pitches. Okay. Michael Lorenzen. Yeah. His first game with the Phillies, and he throws a no-hitter. Good for him. But he threw, they let him throw 125 pitches. Yeah. That's like unheard of these days. Okay. Do you know I never threw a no-hitter? I don't, but it doesn't surprise me. What do you mean? What do you mean? I mean like at any level, at I any was level. unable okay, that's rough. Yeah. to pull off the no-hitter. I had about seven one-hitters. Yeah. But I had a whole bunch of like lost it in the last inning, lost it in the last say, inning, lost it in the last inning. How close did you? Were you just a choker? Well, there was one game I gave up an infield single in like the first inning, yeah, and then didn't give up a right. hit the rest of the game. And the guy on the other team, a future teammate of mine, threw a no hitter, but we won the game one nothing <laughs> because of errors and walks. So he walked a bunch of guys. Okay. So we won the game one nothing. I've won a bunch of one nothing games. But yeah. I could never throw a no hitter. Still, still eats at me. Yeah. Like even like my high school coach is like, man, you want that no hitter? You gotta, you know, you, like I do want that no hitter. Nope. Happened. One hit, two hit, plenty of those. But how close to the end of the game did you get? I was one you? out away in little league. I think I was two outs away. I was like an inning away in high school once. Um, college, I never really got close. But I had like a three hit shutout. I had some of those types of deals. You know. Starting to sound like the the higher the level of baseball you got to, the further away from getting a no hitter you got. Yeah, of course it's harder. With the, the Which also get, seems to just indicate that you know, the, the better the the better the level of the game, the worse you were. Well, I did a good job. You know, the that the thing that people responded to about the uh, stat line that looks fake. Yeah, and I got to uh, humble brag the, the time that my ERA was under one. In a game with all these other major league pitchers, Daniel McCutcheon and David Robertson and Sergio Romo, all these guys were like still playing. Romo just retired. I had better ERA than all of them hmm. at one little snapshot a month into the season in 2008 in AA. Nice. So there you go. All right, had to talk a little baseball for a minute. I'm out of here. Yeah. Thanks to everybody for tuning in. Enjoy the football this weekend, and we'll see you again on Monday morning for more PFF NFL podcast.